You are listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews from experts from around the world on human rights and humanitarian law. Today, IWI's Matthew Scott, our team leader for People on the Move, is talking to François Crépeau, who is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Migrants between 2011 and 2017. He is now a professor at the Faculty of Law of McGill University. Enjoy! I'd like to start by just asking you to reflect on a claim which you have made and others have also made that migrants' rights are human rights. Does that claim require any kind of qualification, particularly having regard to the range of denials of human rights that we see all over the world faced by migrants? The fact that migrants' rights are human rights does not require qualification, but the lack of respect for human rights does require some explanation. That's what I can do. The first element of the question, migrants' rights are human rights. All the international instruments on human rights, as well as many domestic, often constitutional instruments on human rights, do not restrict human rights to citizens. They apply to, and I quote from many instruments, everyone. So if you look at the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, all the rights mentioned are for everyone, except two, the right to enter and stay in the country and the right to vote and be elected. So these two rights are reserved to citizens. All other rights are for everyone, including the right to equality and the prohibition of discrimination. What is discrimination? Discrimination is a distinction that is not justified. And there are ways of justifying distinctions. And in many cases, we see, either in law or in practice, distinctions made between foreigners and citizens, which are barely justified or are unjustified or unjustifiable. And very often, there's not even a legal recourse against that. And it's not happening because migrants very often don't have the time, the energy to go after that. So that is the first part. Migrants' rights are human rights because human rights apply to all, including migrants. States have obligations towards all persons who are on their territory or within their jurisdiction. It might even apply to people who are outside the country and within their jurisdiction. So that's the first part. The second part, why are migrants' rights not respected? They're not respected because if you look at the history of marginalized groups, who have claimed their rights over time. And we can start with the industrial workers in the 19th century, women at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, in more recent years, indigenous peoples in countries like my country in Canada, uh, people with disabilities, gays and lesbians. All these people have claimed their rights based on equal citizenship. And they've had to fight for them. And when we see the Me Too movement, which comes 80 years after women have gained the right to vote, they're still fighting for them. Rights, human rights, were never given by majorities to marginalized groups. Marginalized groups had to wrestle their rights from the hands of majorities. And in order to do that, they had to use the lever of citizenship, equal citizenship and the claim to equal treatment. Now, migrants are not citizens. Migrants are not going to have the right to vote in any foreseeable future. 
I think they should have. That's another completely other issue. If you've been resident and paying taxes for one year in a country and you benefit from all the social benefits and participate in paying for all the social structures in the state and you're obeying the law, there's no reason why you shouldn't have your say on how the taxes are spent or levied or how um, the government is uh, you know, producing laws. You should have your say. That to me is, you know, is a given, but that's not how we work now. And considering the toxic debate around migration, it's not going to happen anytime soon. So migrants do not have the lever of equal citizenship. And therefore, they're always subject to the possible deportation. And therefore, most migrants who are in a vulnerable situation, a precarious situation, and you know, in, in that we mostly exclude all the expats, Canadian expat engineer in Qatar or the doctor who is working in Singapore or whatever. We, we exclude them because they have enough social capital to defend their rights. But if you take the millions of migrants who uh, have precarious status, either because they're undocumented or because they are with a temporary status, often with a single employer, and which can end at any time, their fear is that the migration project in which they have invested so much in terms of time, energy, money, thanks to which they are able to support their families, the fir their first priority is to protect the migration project, not to defend their rights. So mo in most cases for these migrants, the millions of migrants who are in a precarious situation, their main strategy, if their rights are abused, is to move on, not to defend them. Why? Because their migration project is at stake and they can't uh, lose that. Their whole family, their clan, their village is counting on that. Their kids will not be educated if they are returned home empty-handed. And that to them is the priority. So this is why we have situations, for example, in agriculture or construction, where migrants are abused on a daily basis, and yet they shy away from working with unions, working with NGOs, and going to court to get their wages, to get the, you know, the work conditions be, uh, be enhanced, etc. They don't do that. All they hope is that Mario is going to come at the end of the day and pay them so that they can save a bit of money on that and send it home. And therefore, as long as you don't have a group of people who are empowered to fight for their rights. And this empowerment comes in part from citizenship, but in part also from sheer courage and, and you know, the force of will of a group of people who decide that enough is enough and you have to go forward. And we've seen that for industrial workers, for women, for indigenous peoples, often at great cost for the first generation that fights for them, but it happens. Uh, migrants are not there yet and it's, slowly coming, and we'll discuss that, uh, but it's going to be a, sl a slow process, much slower than what's happened for other marginalized groups in society. Yes, I, I, I see that, uh, that analysis, uh, especially the link between citizenship and being able to, to claim the rights in a, in a more robust kind of way than migrants who have a project to protect and much more difficulties asserting their rights. But what about uh, in countries where 
you have, uh, let's imagine a state that feels like it wants to do its best to fulfill its human rights obligations, even under the covenant on economic, social, and cultural rights, for example, or the convention on the rights of the child. What should a state like that do where it has what it perceives at least to be conflicting demands between protecting a national welfare state and on the other hand, guaranteeing without discrimination, the equal enjoyment of economic and social and cultural rights, uh, irrespective of nationality or even of immigration status. Is it acceptable, in other words, for a state to deny on the basis of immigration status equal access to health care or equal access to social housing? Or are states then within their legitimate uh, margin of appreciation? Are they justifiably discriminating on the basis of immigration status in that case? If, say, a person is uh, even undocumented or has no lawful right to, to be in the country in the first place. How do states balance that? The answer is not straightforward in the sense that Yes, states have the power to decide. You know, they, they may decide this and that. However, there are human rights that are inscribed in international instruments that they have agreed to, including the right to health, for example, the right to, to education for children, etc., etc. And they have placed themselves in a position where they have to decide collectively whether they're going to guarantee access to education for migrant ch for children of undocumented migrants. Now, I think we should go back one step and think about why there are undocumented migrants. And to me, it is the result of state policies. In the 50s and 60s, our economies needed migrants, and it was easy to come. Millions of Africans and Turks entered Europe, very often without previously obtaining a visa, coming as tourists, but within a day or two, they found a job. They went to the préfecture in, in France, for example, and got a work permit within 24 hours because there was an employer willing to employ them. And the state said, well, that's good. You're going to make money and pay taxes. You know, we want that. And we have done that. And, and millions of workers contributed to the economy, paid taxes, and they were all in a documented you know, situation. Now, with the oil shocks and the increase in unemployment in Western countries, there was a reaction, which was already somewhat of a populist reaction, but was not characterized as such at the time, against immigration. Say, oh, now they, they need to go back. We don't need them anymore. And European countries, and up to a certain point in North America, to, in a different way, were very surprised that they wouldn't because they had established themselves over the past 30 years. They had children, grandchildren, and there's no reason to go back to a village in, in you know, rural Algeria, which has been emptied of its population. And they were, we were surprised that they wouldn't uh, go back. And, and, and then there was this, the, the beginning of this populist wave. I mean, the, uh, the first um, city hall that the Front National conquered in France was 1982, just after the, the, the oil shocks. And so that came, it came at that moment. At the same time, there is a phenomenon that started, it had started before, and it was only another wave of it, but what we call now globalization. We talk, we've been talking about globalization 
since the late 70s, mildly, but more, more importantly, early 80s. And that globalization um, has changed how we, how we see the world. And, and we have seen extraordinary changes that have facilitated mobility, knowledge about how life is in the global north, etc. And people were empowered because cost of traveling between continents has come down considerably. Diasporas were created. People had cousins and family in other countries, etc. And so mobility has considerably increased. Now, globalization meant what in the past 30 years? It meant that we have delocalized most of the economic sectors that could be delocalized. So manufacturing, be it on, be it you know, manufacturing uh, clothes or or chips or computers or cars, has been sent to countries with much lower wages in order to cut uh, labor costs. Now, many sectors of our economy cannot be delocalized: agriculture, care, construction, fisheries, hospitality, extraction mining. All these sectors cannot be delocalized. They are local by nature. And what we have done in this case, I don't think it was a strategy from the beginning, but it's manifest today, is that we have delocalized the labor costs of the South to the North, paying $2 or two euros per hour for picking fruits and vegetables, be it in California or in Italy, can be characterized as a delocalization of working conditions of the South to the North. And we've done that based on the precariousness of the status of migrants. We can do this because migrants do not protest, do not unionize, do not go to court, do not contest. And we have done that in all those sectors. Construction, I'm told, and it's very difficult to check because uh, states do not keep adequate statistics on undocumented migrants, and they do not keep adequate statistics on non-documented migrants, because if they did, we would ask for accountability as to why the numbers go up or down. And it's much better not to have any, any numbers. But we are told, and that's done by sociologists and political scientists, that 50% of the construction boom in Toronto is done thanks to undocumented workers. And certainly, if you look at countries like Qatar and the Gulf states, the vast majority of construction workers are in a very, very precarious situation with a single employer who can fire them, in which case they lose their residence permit and have to go home at will. And that's precariousness. We have constructed precariousness and a precarious situation in order to be able to extract the maximum work possible for the minimum wage possible. And this is done in two ways. Certainly, uh, the, um, the single employer temporary migrant visas are a mechanism to cow them into submission. But also, we have allowed undocumented migrant workers to be employed in many sectors without the employers being punished or even investigated for that. Yes, from time to time, we hear of a meat packing plant in the U.S. being raided by ICE, and, and we hear that 350 undocumented migrants were arrested and sent to detention centers pending their deportation. But the meat packing plant opens again the day after with a full set of employees. Many of them probably will not be undocumented because for a few weeks they will, you know, take care to not provide IC with reasons to come back. 
But after a while, it happens again. We know that in my town, in my city, Montreal, there's a whole district where we are, we are manufacturing T-shirts. Now, T-shirts can be made for five cents in Laos. With the type of minimum wage we have in Montreal, we cannot productively make T-shirts. You know, it doesn't compute economically unless we pay the employees very poorly. And in most of our countries, labor inspections are useless or are totally underfunded. And when they do inspections, they will very often be told, labor inspectors will be told, look for undocumented migrants and please denounce them to the immigration authorities. Instead of look for poor working conditions, non-respect of labor standards, and please take action against the employer. In doing so, we have created in our economies, we have entrenched in our economies, whole sectors of the economy, which the profitability of which is based on labor exploitation. Very often of uh, foreigners, not always of foreigners, look at the gig economy, which has been in the headlines for a few years now. The gig economy doesn't concern foreigners mostly, it concerns citizens. But for a whole series of sectors, foreigners are being exploited because they are foreigners and because we all know, and that is where I think states are responsible, they know very well which sectors are uh, sectors where foreigners are exploited and why these people are exploited. Funding better, empowering labor inspections to go after employers and not the migrant workers would go a long way towards limiting the exploitation of those workers. But now that we have done that for 30 years, we are all very happy that the tomatoes we buy in September to do our tomato sauce for the winter are at $2 the basket or $3 the basket. I've met sub-Saharan African workers who were paid two euros per hour for 10 hours of work in the fields in southern Italy. I've met them, I've discussed with them. That means that, toma- that Italian tomatoes can be sold on the market for cutthroat prices and we buy them and we're very happy as consumers. The day we, we put a real value on the labor in an open and regulated market, it will be at best minimum wage, but considering how difficult it is to be on all four under the sun for long hours to pick fruits and vegetables, the salary that will be required on an open and, regular, and, and regulated labor market will probably be much more than a minimum salary. And this means that the price of tomatoes will be simply unaffordable. And we could have entire sectors collapsing. And we don't discuss this issue for two reasons. One is that we don't want to kill the goose with a golden egg. We don't want to collapse several sectors of our economy, which would happen if the labor cost went up dramatically. And second, no one's complaining. We consumers are happy. The farmer is happy. The mayor of the village is happy because the farms are there. The minister of revenue is happy because taxes are coming in. The minister of international trade is happy because tomatoes are exported. And no one's complaining because migrants don't go to court and migrants don't get unionized. Now, this, this is slowly changing, slowly, very slowly. And we citizens are not protesting against these labor conditions because they do not concern us. 
And this has been happening for decades, while the gig economy has been happening maybe for five or six years. And the gig economy is in the headlines, but agriculture workers are not. So that, you see, that's why the precariousness of status is what allows states to do nothing against entrenched labor exploitation of migrant workers. And denying uh, economic, social, and cultural rights, for example, is just uh, part of part of the continued marginalization and precarity of, of that situation. I follow. But one thing that's interesting to follow up on that analysis, Professor, is when you said towards the end that nobody is complaining. And one sector of the population across Europe, which is described variously as far right or anti-migrant movements, etc., are complaining very loudly and so loudly that you know, we're seeing shifts in the political constellation yeah. of many European countries. And mm-hmm. so I wonder if I can invite you to reflect a little bit on mm-hmm. uh, another one of these catchphrases. Uh, we started off with migrants' rights or human rights, but now we also have people talking about broken systems. And that can be at the national level with quite a range of actors who are saying the system is broken for one way or another, whether it's Mm -hmm. broken because it fails to address the rights of migrants or it's broken because it allows uh, migrants to come in in a way that is perceived in that line of argument as a reflection of a failure of the state to manage the entry and stay of non-citizens. We see that particularly played out in the Mediterranean stage where all kinds of actors within the European space are clamoring to figure out how to stop the boats, for example. Whilst at the same time on your analysis, we see clear economic advantages for the state, for individuals, for the private sector in having migrants. So I invite you to, to, to reflect on that. But is it the case that this is a kind of cynical dance where we all know that we need undocumented migrants or migrants of any stripe, but we need to play to the theater somehow to say we're really trying very hard to stop this flow, even if it means sacrificing a little bit of legitimacy as a, as a sovereign protector of borders? Part of the answer is quite clear. Migrants, I come back to the point of departure, migrants do not vote. And I'm talking not about permanent residents or, you know, Canadians in Germany uh, working in different high-tech sectors, etc. I'm always talking mostly about migrants who are in a precarious situation and the millions of them. Who are the, the object? You know, the, the number of Canadians or Americans in Europe is far superior to the number of Ethiopians, but no one complains about the Americans and the Canadians. They complain about the Ethiopians. Now, migrants do not vote. Migrants, for fear of being detected, detained, deported, do not participate in public debates. They will not be interviewed. They, they don't like that. They, don't, they even shy away from contacting NGOs in case the NGO has contacts with the police or with the employer, etc. So they're very difficult to support, Very often, we don't know who they are. For research purposes, it's very difficult to find them. They don't trust researchers because we come from universities. Universities are part of the state institutions, and therefore, you know, it could be connected to the police, etc. So they don't participate in public debates. This means that contrary to all other sectors of public policy, the main people concerned by those public policies are not infusing the debate 
with a reality check. Migration policies are made by non-migrants for non-migrants. Just like before women got the right to vote, policies about women were made by men for men. This means that policies about women at that time and policies about migrants today are very often, not always, but very often based on stereotypes, myths, fantasies, threats that are invented and remain uncontradicted. All the research shows that migrants do not take jobs, except in very specific pockets of the labor market. That migrants do not bring illnesses. The big killer around the planet is the flu. And the flu is always brought in to most countries by business people on planes. Migrants bring, you know, like everyone else, they bring their health issues, but you know, they're not the source of pandemics. Migrants do not change our values. Migrants and societies, host societies, evolve over time and their values change. The biggest changes in values for our societies are generational, not linked to migration. If you take divorce, abortion, uh, same-sex marriage, uh, legalization of drugs, these are generational changes, not linked to migration. So all the fantasies that a good part of the population may have, and certainly that a good part of the politicians are pushing, goes uncontradicted because the people who could contradict them simply do not speak up. And it was the same for indigenous peoples when I was young in Canada. You know, Indians were lazy and, and they wouldn't respond to orders and they arrived late at, at work. Et that was the fantasies we had about India. They have changed that because they started speaking up. They started negotiating with governments. They started making money. They started employing lawyers. And this has changed. It is the same attitude that the wealthy bourgeoisie of the 19th century had against the poor. The poor was, were a danger. They were at, at risk of revolution, of anarchist uh, movements, etc. They were afraid. They were threats. And so you had poor houses and you had all sorts of mechanisms of social control. We are in the same situation now because there's no way for these migrants who are in a precarious situation to speak up and to defend their point of view and to show, like women did, like gays and lesbians did, like aboriginals did, that they're just people with concerns, with hopes, with kids to raise, with money to make, with houses to pay, and that it will not be a big revolution if their rights are recognized. Okay, so that to me is the starting point of the issue. Most of the nationalist populist rhetoric is just that. It's a rhetoric which has nothing to do with facts. So there was an article in the op-eds today in the New York Times, this morning in the New York Times, that said that America needs one million worker per year, one million immigrants per year until 2050, if it is to achieve the kind of wealth creation that it needs to remain competitive with China. Now, this is not what most American politicians are saying. In 2000, there was a report by the UN saying that Europe needed 150 million migrants between 2000 and 2050 if it was to maintain its uh, lifestyle. 
it was very much scoffed at by European governments at the time. But the research actually backs up those things, those results. We need, and one of the reasons why Angela Merkel opened the doors of Germany in 2015 was a small report by the big German foundations, the Volkswagen Foundation, the Siemens Foundation, etc. There, there are 14 or 15 foundations that have an immigration council. And in that little report of April 2015, this Council of German Foundations, which is a powerful advisor, said, we need workers, let them in. We need more people, a lot more people. And so we have a complete contradiction between the political discourse and the, the research and economic uh, advice that that politician also received. Now, you cannot win an election based on being good to migrants because there's so much resentment against migrants and migrants don't vote. If migrants voted, imagine if, if, my, if the millions of migrants that are in Europe voted with the type of percentage of win or fail that we have in most elections, be it when uh, you have coalition governments or whether you have a first by the post system, the number of votes that could be gained if migrants voted, we would have a completely different debate about migration in, in most of our countries. So we have to understand that the nationalist populist stance is created because they can. Just like we had a very conservative pushback against women's vote, a pushback against same-sex marriage, a pushback against divorce. We had that. And we've come over it, and generationally, it has changed. Again, it's a generational change. I don't believe that the nationalist populist stance or movement is going to change anytime soon. I think it's generational. It's my generation, the baby boomers. I'm, I'm at the tail end of the baby boomers. The baby boomers have accumulated a wealth that has been unknown in the history of mankind. I think they will, for their heirs, they will leave something like $600 trillion in terms of passing of generation. And they fear for that money to, to disappear based on threats. And so my generation is very afraid because we uh, lived a childhood very often in the global north where uh, there was not much diversity and there was not much mobility. We lived our childhood in the 50s and in the early 60s, and, and it was not a mobile world yet, and it was not a diverse world. And we are afraid of this diversity that has appeared around us without us suspecting that it would come. I think that the generation of our children who are living in a world that is diverse and mobile will, will not fear that. And they will come to power in 20, 30, 40 years with a completely different attitude towards cultural, religious, linguistic diversity, and towards mobility. And I think that will change. But again, it will be a generational change. And I fear when you look at the type of people who vote for the, the populist, nationalist populist stance, you will find that the age limit is much higher, that the age average is much higher than those who are not afraid of immigration and who are participating in trying to protect migrants. And, and that is common. It's not always the case. We see regions 
especially regions which have been rapidly deindustrialized, such as Eastern, former Eastern Germany, etc., where you have a lot of young people with, you know, precarious future who are against migrants whom they see as competition. And this is fueled uh, extensively by the nationalist populist movement because it brings them vote. Uh, but apart from that, if you look across the board, older people fear migration and younger people do not. The vast majority of young people in, in the UK voted against Brexit. And one of the key arguments for Brexit was reclaiming the border against all those migrants from Europe and from outside Europe. And so I think that this will change up to a point, if you wish, the nationalist populist stance against migrants, the war has been lost. They're winning battles now, but in the long term, the war is lost. Diversity and mobility are there to stay and to increase. And it's a swan song of a generation that is afraid for its nest egg. This generation that will eventually pass into the, the sunset is <laughs> a European OECD demographic. Uh, and that's the demographic we've been discussing so far, yeah. the situation yeah. in Canada, yes. Europe, etc. Yes and um, no, because you find the same type of demographic and the same type of marginalizing migrants in the elites of many countries in the South as well. You find mm -hmm. that in Hong Kong, you find that in Singapore, you find that in South Africa, you find that in Malaysia. You have, you know, an uneducated migrant class that is oppressed by an elite or a budding bourgeoisie. And so it's not simply the global north. It's educated elite classes or bourgeoisie classes in most states that have them who want, need, and can use foreign labor as cheap labor. And it's not simply when you see how Zimbabweans or other Africans are treated in South Africa, in the mining sector, in the construction sector, you see how the, the Burmese are treated in Thailand, you see how domestic workers, foreign domestic workers are treated in Hong Kong or Singapore, you have exactly the same pattern. That's interesting. And I, I, I note that you have, in your capacity as the special rapporteur, also visited a number of countries that might fall into what we describe as the global south, Angola, mm -hmm. uh, Sri Lanka, etc. So I take it that you're building also on your, your visits to those mm -hmm. countries. So if that's the case, that what you describe is, is, of course, a complex and inevitably a situation with local characteristics, but still characterized by some element of states and private sector perceiving an interest in migrant precarity, generational perceptions of threats of the other, creating the kind of dynamic that some have described as a broken system, both nationally and, and internationally. Do you see this global compact on safe, orderly and regular migration that was uh, adopted in uh, December 2018, along with the Global Compact on Refugees. Do you see it as a panacea? Is it gonna help to move us into a, a new phase of global and national level migration management or better protection of the rights of migrants in, in different kinds of situations? The process leading to the Global Compact was fascinating. And the result, the document is much better than anything that was expected. And it is a testament to the wisdom of the negotiators and the two main actors were the ambassadors of, 
of Mexico and Switzerland to the UN, but it's a negotiated document. There had been six months of consultations, open consultations with states, which meant that whatever they said would not be taken into account except as ideas. It, would not, it was not commitments on the part of states. And then there was a six month of negotiations this in the, with six rounds of, of thematic negotiations. And what comes out of it is a document which actually covers most, not all, there are blind spots, but most of the migration issues that are often taken out of context as being problematic. Stealing jobs. Yes, they're stealing jobs. Well, they're not stealing jobs. They're taking up jobs. And then we say they're taking jobs that citizens won't do. Well, it's not they're taking jobs that citizens won't do. They're taking jobs that citizens won't do at the wage and in the conditions that are offered. If you offered $30 per hour to pick strawberries and tomatoes, you would have Italians and Americans lining up to do that. But then the whole tomato industry would, would collapse. So we need to transition over time, and states are not doing anything about it because no one complains, really, in the courts and, and, and through unions, etc. So what is interesting here is that states negotiated a document which takes into account most of these issues and presents them in a coherent way in one document, making connections between issues. You know, the labor force needs better health care so that they'd be more productive. So migrants need better health care. In order to provide better health care, they need to have some kind of status. So we need to provide them with status. In order to provide them with status, we need to take into account the fact that many of them are already here without status and that they actually do work and they've worked well and the employers are happy with them. So why not regularize them? Oh, that's a swear word in the public debate. You don't want to hear the word regularization. And in the global compact, the word regularization has been deleted. But the paragraph saying that migrants should have access to statuses that allow them to remain in the country is still there. So the concept of regularization is there, even if the word has disappeared. But the whole of the Global Compact presents a roadmap towards solving 90% of the immigration issues that we face presently, and towards reducing considerably the type of nationalist populist rhetoric that we're having presently. And that is why countries like Australia and Hungary and Poland and others uh, refuse to sign it, because it goes contrary to what they're actually using in terms of rhetoric and in terms of policies. And they want to keep the system as it is because it's profitable. But what is interesting is that the text itself is extremely wise. It has taken from years of research, years of consultation, and the consultation between countries and the North countries and South, low-income countries, mid-income countries, high-income countries, etc. It has taken that and put that together in a document. To me, the core message is that mobility should be facilitated. The word facilitated facilitation is used 62 times in the negotiated English version. In the French version, they translated it otherwise in different contexts, but in, 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 and I don't know about the other versions. But the English negotiated version contains the word facilitation, facilitated 62 times. And to me, this is the core message. Mobility 
if mobility is facilitated, if visas are provided, except for those that we don't want, but these are 0.0001% of, of the migrants, and there are criminals we don't want, and there are people from the mafia that we don't want, and we can identify that. It's a very, very tiny number. And, the, and the, the global compact does not mean open borders. The global compact means regulated mobility with papers that you show to the border guard. But we need to expand considerably the number of visas that are available. We need to allow people to come and go to look for work over time. It can't be done in one day. It's a roadmap, and I think it's a generational roadmap, i.e. it'll take 30 years to get there. But what it says is, we need to make it much easier, much less costly, much less dangerous to come to our countries and find jobs and take up employments that employers need. And if we don't find employment, as is the case for most people, we won't stay. If you look inside our countries, if you are from Montreal and you, and you lost your job and you can't find a job in Montreal, you go to Toronto, you go to Vancouver. If you can't find a job at Toronto, then you will go to Calgary. You're not going to stay for the vast majority of people and especially for migrants who have lots of agency and they want to work because they have a family to support. They're not going to stay idle on the sidewalk. They're going to try to find a job, even at $2 or $3 an hour. They're going to try to find something. And if they can't find something in a country, they'll go to the next and to the next until they find something. This is what most people do in general between cities inside countries, between countries inside the EU. I remember a time where in, in Ireland, actually in Dublin, you can have a, a beer without it being served with a Latvian or Polish accent. And no one was complaining. That was before the crisis. No one was complaining. And when the crisis came, at least a third of these EU migrants left the UK and went somewhere else in, in the EU with transferable abilities that they had gained, like speaking English, and they created wealth elsewhere. And they're mobile. And this mobility is what we're looking for. People should go where jobs are available in order to create more wealth for everyone. This is not different at international level. And we need to facilitate that and we need to control it. At present, with our prohibitive policies, we are leaving the control of borders to mafias. We don't need to do that. In the 50s and 60s, uh, as I've said before, there, were, there was no smuggling across the Mediterranean while millions of Africans and Turks entered Europe. Everyone could take a ferry. Everyone could enter. And they had all to present papers at the border guard because there was no freedom of movement at the time. So they all had papers, and some of them had visas, or they had, didn't need a visa, and they came as tourists, found a job, went to the authorities, asked for a work permit, got it, and started to work and, and make money for everyone. So this is the spirit. It goes totally against the grain of most of the political discourse we hear about migration these days, because, as I've mentioned before, this political discourse can happen because migrants do not provide a reality check, like women and other marginalized groups provided a reality check at one point in history in the discourse that was marginalizing them. But it's going to happen, and I don't think it's going to happen soon. I believe that we'll have to wait for my generation to, to exit the stage and for another generation less afraid of mobility and diversity to take up. But at least 
we had a very credible roadmap that is based on years of research and collective wisdom of most states, north and south. And most states recognize today that they are, at the same time, states of emigration, states of transit, and states of immigration. And so they have a stake in all the migration issues. And this is a recognition which is recent. But it is a recognition, and certainly the negotiation of the Global Compact has spurred a common understanding of how migration should be governed, except that it is inaudible on the political stage at present. It, um, it's appropriate, I think, at this point in, in time, uh, just a month after the, the adoption of the, the Global Compact, to think about the future and uh, you're describing a, uh, that maybe it takes 30 years to see a significant shift in, in attitudes and, and practices, even though, of course, gradually we might see some changes. It will not take 30 years. It will, as you just said, it will progressively change. I think we'll see important changes within probably the next 10 years and more important change in the 10 years that follow. And probably most of the, you know, 80% of the objectives, the global compact could be achieved 30 years from now, but it'll be very progressive and it'll change probably incrementally on many issues. For example, labor inspections, lots of work to do on labor inspections so that they don't target the workers, but they target the employers. I don't think we'll see something in the next 10 years on that. States are not interested in targeting businesses that provide taxes. That'll take some more time before we actually tackle this. But uh, maybe uh, access to school for children of undocumented migrants, this is spreading. This is, I mean, campaigning for children is actually well received, even by nationalist populists. We might see better conditions for treating children of undocumented migrants in the coming years. But I think on all of this, it'll be a scattered implementation. And we might see most of it implemented maybe in 30 years from now. You finished your mandate in 2017, so I suppose I'm not exactly asking you about the future, but what are you doing now having completed two rounds of, of the mandate and what plans have you got in your academic and other activities for now and the future? Well, I am an academic. My mandate as special rapporteur was an aside, if you wish. It was pro bono, so I, I, I remained an academic all the time that I was special rapporteur. Uh, I've taught and I've written articles and edited books and you know do what academics do and train students. And there is an increased interest by students on migration issues. When I started my career, I, I never had, for the first 10 years of my career, I've, I've not had a graduate student interested in migration law or sometimes a few, a few about re international refugee law, but not, certainly not about migration law. Now I have, you know, many graduate students interested and many programs around the planet in universities on migration issues have sprouted here and there. And so there is a much greater interest and there, there's much better scholarship. Uh, there's much greater attention given to migration movements and migration phenomena. Uh, so I'm, I'm continuing to do this. I'm continuing to write articles and certainly I'm going to push towards recognizing that migration is a fact of life, that migration is in the DNA of mankind, 
it's not going to stop because we've had 400 years of theory of state sovereignty. We've had, as a species, 300,000 years of migration around the planet. And if we take our ancestors, probably several million years, we, this is not going to stop. We are going to, going to migrate, whether or not governments like it, whether or not national populists like it. And the world is going to get more diverse, more mobile, increasingly so. So apart from very geographically protected areas, this is a fundamental trend that's not going to change. So I'm studying that and, and I'm continuing to do that. On, on the human rights of migrants, I've had the good fortune of now being part of the scientific council of the European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights. I'm working with 10 other academics or civil servants who are part of that scientific council and we're reviewing the reports of FRA, Fundamental Rights Agency. And I've been, because of my expertise, I've been asked to review in particular, but not only, the reports dealing with migration issues or diversity issues or racism issues, etc. And this is extremely interesting because I think that FRA is doing a great job as, at trying to rationalize the human rights debate in Europe, contributing to the human rights debate and on migration issues, linking migrants' rights to human rights and migrants' rights to other issues as well, economic uh, feasibility, uh, practical issues, costs of prohibitive policies is enormous. When policies that would facilitate regulated migration would bring in money. Let's take just one example. If instead of what we have seen between 2012 and now around the Syrian crisis, if the EU had proposed 100,000 places in 2012, 200,000 places in 2013, 300,000 places in 2014, which are very low numbers for a 500 million inhabitant continent. If they had done that, tens of thousands of people would have crossed the Mediterranean, but not a million or not two million. We would have much reduced the crisis. Why? Because the migrants who were the, the Syrians, who were in, in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, were looking for a solution. And they took the solution into their own hands when they saw that no one did anything for them. If the European Union and countries like Canada, the US, and it should be, it should be in solidarity, and that's where the refugee issue is a bit different from the migration issue, um, if, the, if the European Union had offered those places progressively with organized mobility, people coming by plane, not through boats, finding ways of bringing these people in a decent manner, and organizing this with the NGO sector, civil society, organizing this with employers, just as the German foundations had suggested, if it had been organized, this would have had benefits across the board. One, the refugees would have found places where they would be protected and they could build a future for themselves and their children, which is the objective of any migrant and any refugee in the world. And second, employers would have prepared for that. The civil society would have prepared for that, would have organized it, would have built capacity over time, taking on more and more uh, refugees as needed. And this requires planning. This requires foresight. And do not tell me that 
European people in charge of planning, strategic planning, were not aware from 2012 on that a crisis was coming. They were. They knew. It was bound to come. They needed to prepare, but not one single government wanted to take the political risk of saying so. And certainly there was total disagreement within the EU as to who should do what. But this is precisely where we need a common ground in terms of factual evaluation of what migration is. Migration is a fact of life for humankind. Migration will happen. It will happen in a, in a regulated manner if we have foresight. It will happen in an unregulated manner if we couldn't care less about preparing for that. And so to me, this is the, the objective of the coming 30 years. Can we get governments to have the foresight to say, okay, let's organize ourselves. Let's do this, but do this the right way. And we can do it. And the advantage of doing this is that you don't have chaos on the beach and therefore you don't have fear in the heart of European citizens who see these people like hordes of, you know, you know the language that's being used. Mm. We, treat, we treat migrants as if they were a tsunami or a toxic waste. We see them collectively as a, a huge danger when in fact, they are individuals just like us. And, and we're doing for migrants what we did for women. You know, we treat them collectively as if they were one. They're not. And women have proved to us that they are individuals just like anyone else and that they have different qualities depending on, on who they are and where, they're, where they've been educated. It's the same for migrants. We can't say that migrants are like this or like that. We can't say that Jews are like this or like that anymore. I mean, this is the kind of thing that we need to progress towards. We need to change our, our mindset towards migrants. And I'm still working on that. And institutions like the Fundamental Rights Agency of the European Union is working towards that. I think that many human rights commissions around Europe and around the world are working towards that. I think that many parliamentarians are very aware of the damage caused by the nationalist populist stance on migration. And they're very aware that of the damage caused in their own districts, electoral district. You know, if you have a very prohibitive attitude, well, migrants will go somewhere else and you will lose workers and you will lose qualified workers. And suddenly you will have labor needs that you didn't have. And suddenly you don't know how to react. You don't know how to change your discourse because you have, you've had a very prohibitive discourse for such a long time, and now you need to change tack and you don't know how to do this. And that's why we see, for example, in the Republican Party in the US, voices that are actually in favor of immigration and, and who are at present marginalized. It's a contradictory, very often the nationalist populist stance cuts across parties. It's not a full conservative movement or a full liberal movement. And so we are in a state of confusion because those who could bring the reality check do not speak up. And so one of the things that I'm working towards is that we need to empower migrants to speak up in the public debate, which means making a place for them without fear of being deported. Changing perceptions and sharing that, that insight from a history starting way back hundreds of years ago, Professor Kripo, this is a, a fascinating tour of uh, what's happening at present in the context of 
international migration. And let me just uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and uh, wish you all the best in your uh, present endeavors. It was a pleasure. I'm very happy to try to convince more people. (laughs) (laughs) That was RWI's Matthew Scott interviewing François Crépoux, the former UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Migrants. Thank you for listening. For more information, visit our website at www.rwi.lu.se.